Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In Series 3, we sit down with business leaders and futurists from across the globe to discuss what emerging tech means to them, how technology impacts workplace culture, and their advice to businesses on how to stay one step ahead of the competition. In this episode, Ian Tompkinson chats to Roland Emmons, who is Head of Technology Sector and Growth Lending at HSBC about the technologies that are appealing to investors and how technology adds value to enterprise organizations. Roland is also a Tech Nation Advisory Board member and UEL Center of FinTech Strategic Advisory Board member. This is the ASM Connect podcast. I'm Ian Tomkinson, and today I've got Roland Emmons with me. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very happy to be here. And hopefully I'll not do too bad a job on the questions. Yeah, no, well, nothing too tasking today. And thanks again for taking the time out. I know you're going to be a busy man. So I I suppose really to just give the audience an overview of the the chat that we're going to have today, we've got a bit of an outline plan. I suppose we're going to touch on emerging technology, innovation. We're also going to look at, you know, the technologies that are appealing to investors out there at the moment. But also, could technology help drive more value to us humans as well as the enterprise as well? So, you know, that user engagement, which I think is really important these days. So I'll go straight in with a a quick question in terms of to start as nothing too challenging, even though I actually said that and I thought, actually, that's that's quite a tough start. So in your role, you must speak to lots of business leaders from the tech sector. Do you look to the culture of the business and their growth mindset and, and their investability, or is the technology the key driver, regardless of the people behind it? And I suppose that's a bit of a drag, dragon's den type question, isn't it? So you said I wouldn't get hard questions. You're starting on a pretty difficult one. Let's have a go. Let's see. Let's see what can come out of it. So if I told you that 30% of everything we knew from a sort of technology perspective was out of date each year, would that would that surprise you? Clearly, you're you're on the same wavelength as me. So. It absolutely has to be around growth mindset, because if you follow that 30% logic through, it's a little bit flawed. That means after three years, you know nothing. That's not true because we're learning all the time. But the pace of change in the world at the moment is the fastest it's ever been, and it is only going to accelerate. So you ha- I, I fundamentally believe you have to have a growth mindset. If I, if I look at some data points that may or may not help there, so the World Economic Forum in Davos about six or seven years ago, they identified 27 skills of the future. I I simplified that down to three groups. One is about being a decent human being, so able to interact with humans, understand emotion, have emotional intelligence. Another one was about understanding technology, but you don't need to be a technologist. I think we might touch on that a bit later on. And the third thing was just having having a lifelong desire to learn, because given the pace of change, if you don't learn, you're going to be going backwards or standing still if you're lucky. So I mean, when I'm talking to businesses, and I am incredibly lucky, I get to meet somewhere between two and 300 CEOs and business leaders a year in, in, in my job from all, all sorts of areas, from very disruptive early stage scruffy tech that's changing the world to large CEOs of international PLCs that, that are very big tech enterprises. And if there's one thing that, that probably rings true across all of the board and all the different skill sets is that they are those, those individuals are good human beings mostly yeah you can't it's always somebody that proves the rule but they've also got a desire to learn and they have to learn and they have to evolve so i guess tech is tech but people are the enduring thing because most tech businesses actually when you get down to it they are relatively tech agnostic because if they didn't change and they don't change like like your business and many of your listeners if you don't change then you're going to end up being a dinosaur so quite a long answer to a not very easy question yeah, sorry, sorry about that for the first one, but at least it's got us into the flow of things. I, I always find as well when, you know, I, I spend a lot of time speaking to disruptive and innovative tech vendors. And I find as well that sometimes they have either got an amazing technology product that is, is really good, really disruptive, but they don't have the commercial awareness to actually sell that product into the right people to get themselves moving. And I think that's quite often their biggest challenge is understanding the commercial side of it. And, you know, quite often they're, they're brilliant with the tech and they've probably designed it and they're, they're, but they don't understand that 
you know, when you're going into that commercial environment and you're putting that technology in front of the customer, that sometimes that commercial, well, you know, your competitor that you'd be going up against, you might be half the price, you might have a better technology, but if they've got deep pockets and lots of rebates and, and events to throw into the mix, you're always going to come second best. And, and that's a real challenge that we see. Yeah, I think whilst this is a relatively worn and well, well used analogy, it's a bit like when Henry Ford came out with a Model T Ford. Everybody else at that time was trying to find a better horse. Well, a better horse wasn't the answer. Something different was the answer. The reason I, the reason I say that is I think the world has changed from technology being bought pre predominantly on a, a flashing lights, a technology spec basis, and, and probably that changed towards a more solution-driven, I've got a problem, I don't really care what the flashing lights are or what the tech spec is, please make that problem go away. I think that transition has probably made life harder for the sort of businesses that you're referring to there that may be technologically incredibly innovative or very brilliant, but if they can't convey that message and answer the problem that they solve for their customers, then it's just a bit of clever tech. It's not really a business, is it? No, it isn't. And I suppose you've just hit on something that I find quite interesting because, you know, I'm used to dealing with people in the tech industry and, you know, I've you know spent my whole career in the tech industry. So I'm kind of quite used to understanding and articulating what they're trying to put across and the market reasons. But I suppose with yourself, you know, you work for a bank at the end of the day, you're not a, a technology company. Obviously, you understand the technologies, but then you've got to I sort of put that back to your colleagues. Is that sometimes, you know, both the finance side of the business, does that, I take it, you bridge the gap? Yeah, I, I, I jokingly say three things. One, I've got the best job bank because I get to meet a load of interesting people and talk about stuff I think is interesting. I'm a glorified summarizer and three, I'm a glorified translator. So I spend a huge amount of my time summarizing back to management teams that they've told me. So you told me your business and your product does this. And I'll use my own words because if I can't explain what a business or a product or, or whatever it may be does, then how on earth am I ever going to be able to explain to somebody else? And, and I think that's a, a pretty important thing of anybody in business. You've got to be able to you know, convey messages. And then the, the sort of thing about translator, yes, I, I do spend a lot of time translating. I am not a technologist, but I've spent the last 14 years working purely with tech. And a very long time ago, I used to be able to code. So I know a little bit about technology, but I'm absolutely not a technologist. But it is that it's finding, and maybe this is able to simplifying it, but it's finding really simple analogies. I was talking to a colleague the other day, and I'm not going to mention names because they'll hate me for this, but one of their customers was was looking to do some acquisitions. And I sort of said, okay, well, what are they interested in? And he, he, he reeled off this list. I said, okay, let me give you an example. So that's a bit like you saying that you want something for a house and you don't know whether it's a, a plank of wood for a skirting board or a bit of metal pipe or an electrical conduit. They're all things that go in a house, but actually, you know, if I deliver a plank of wood and you want an electrical circuit box, I'm not particularly helping you. So it was using that sort of example of, okay, well, what actually does the client want or what does the business do? It's just drilling down into the granular detail. Yeah, no, and, and that, that's always a challenge. And I sometimes have the same thing, sort of bringing back new technologies to the business to talk to the sales team about it. And it's the old thing, if you can't sell it simply, you don't well know it well enough yourself. So yeah, that, that, that sticks with a lot. But moving on with the rumors, well, probably not rumors, with a recession looming, technologies that deliver cost savings efficiencies are, are always going to be popular with, with enterprise customers, probably even more so with, with the journey that we've got ahead of us in the next couple of years. However, do technology partners do enough to surface those technologies and show value, in your opinion? I, I, that's really hard because it's a double-edged sword. There's, that's a bit like, if you deliver something to the market a year before the market's ready for it, are you helping move the market and developing the market that everybody's going to benefit for, including your competitors? Or are you just, well, and potentially you, or are you just wasting your time and your marketing budget trying to educate the market on something that they're not quite ready for? So I appreciate that sort of on the edge of the question. But if you think about what is going on at the moment, there was some stats that came out of Gartner a few weeks ago they did some research on the US and something like 66% of CFOs they, they polled in the second half of this year said that they were planning to increase their spend on digital transformation. And another 30 odd percent said they were going to 
keep it the same. So that, in my mind, 66 and 32 is 98%. So 98% of the CFOs polled in the US across all areas of the economy in Q2 this year, okay, the world has changed a little bit, but said that they were going to spend the same or they were going to spend more on transformation. And, and that comes back to permanently reducing the cost of doing business. Yes, there is inflationary pressures here. It also comes back to improving customer and employee experience. And also, more fundamentally, if you're going to have to put a price increase through, differentiating yourself from your competition. So yeah, I've, I've drifted away from the question. Hopefully, you're going to humor me and let me, let me finish. But I, I think it's, it's a hard line between what are, you, what are the known unknowns? So I know what I know, but I also know, don't know what I don't know. And how do you educate somebody what they don't know? Because you may have a new shiny widget in your tool bag that could be just the solution to the problem that the customer wants. If you have a deep enough relationship with the customer that they will tell you what their pain points are and you are a cute enough salesperson and willing to listen, then you've got the perfect solution. The, the counter of that is I've got a shiny new widget. I'm going to ram this square peg into the round hole because I've got a shiny new widget. And, and I guess you kind of touched on the people piece earlier on. I'm a massive fan of psychology. And I think the collision between humans and technology gets overlooked too often. And ultimately, it's us that use technology. And you know, human beings are pretty simple beings. There are three things that we broadly pay attention to, something that's going to hurt us, something that's going to benefit us, and something that we're interested in. So if you, if you look at it from that perspective when you're selling, well, if you can get the interest of the person on the other side, if you're going to give them something that's going to benefit them, and if it's not going to hurt them, a bit like the old buy big blue thing, then you're probably onto a winner, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched on an important point there. If you've got the relationship with the customer and you're prepared to listen, I think that they're, they're real key standout points from that. And I think if you've got that, if you build that relationship, you build that trust and someone says, I've got a piece of kit that's going to take some pain away from you if you're speaking to the right people. Again, that's an important point. You know, you, you can spend a lot of time talking about your shiny new widget, but if you're speaking to the wrong person. Yeah, but no, that, that's a valid point. It touched on the digital transformation there. You know, digital transformation is probably one of the most sort of a top, apart from you're on mute, probably one of the most used terminologies in the industry for the last couple of years. Digital transformation in the enterprise is still huge. In your experience, are emerging technologies such as RPA and AI delivering enough value? Or could organizations improve performance through delivering more human-centric technologies? I don't think it's an either-or. Um, and yeah, we're recording this on Zoom, and I've managed not to get myself on mute at the wrong point yet, as far as I can tell. The, the, the question around that is, wh where are these new emerging technologies, whatever you want to call them, whether you want to go all the way to quantum or whether you want to think about robotic process automation or, or AI or machine learning, which is machine learning is probably more heading into the mainstream than, than any of the other things. How overhyped are they? Are they being used in reality? Yes, some of them are. Are they? Have they got fantastic use cases? Yes, they have. Are they mainstream? No, they're not. But if I just part that for a second and go back to digital transformation, if you ask 10 people what digital transformation is, you'll probably get 11 different answers because no, nobody really knows what it means in it. And it means something different to everybody. Too many people think of it as I've got to go and spend five years and 50 million quid on a shiny new ERP system. And when actually it could be as simple as, as just moving something onto an app off a paper-based system. So kind of, you know, let me revert back to the question. The, the, some of this technology is absolutely overhyped massively. The hype cycle will lead to at some point, if people continue to invest in it, and technology continues to improve, it will get really, really good. It's not there yet. Part of the problem around things like AI, you know, bias, which we're all relatively aware of, unstructured data. Most organizations, mine and, and probably yours, most of our um, corporate knowledge, corporate wisdom, if there is such a thing, is probably sitting in our inboxes or sitting in Word documents on servers that's unstructured, that is really hard for those clever algorithms to go and learn from. So I think human beings are pretty important because at the end of the day, we are the bits that are going to digest the systems. If you go, you know, I'm rounding back on digital transformation and I'm not, not picking on it. Fairly well worn stat that most people will have heard is two thirds of digital transformation programs fail to deliver half of their expected benefits. Well, why is that? Well, the first bit of a budget that usually gets cut is the training program. 
you know, human beings. You might want them to use your system at the end of it. The second bit that often gets forgotten about is why are we actually doing this? So selling the benefits and selling the reasons to the end users, human beings. And then there's this massive inert sort of threat where humans often go, I don't like change. I feel threatened by it. I'm going to find a way around it. Right, well, if you lay those three over on top of each other, you end up with a situation where there's not enough money spent on training, hearts and minds haven't been won, and human beings are going to find their way around it. And funnily enough, an adoption doesn't work very well because people haven't been trained and they haven't had hearts and minds won. So I think there is a, too often, there is a lack of thought that goes into how do you actually land it? How do you get the human beings, the 70% water things, how do you get them to actually deal with it? I'm about to contradict myself, and I know that. But there is a change coming, or there's certainly a change in part of the market. If you look at cyber, for example, no matter how much money you throw at cyber, unless you completely take the human beings out of the process, you've still got a massive threat vector and a massive point where there can be problems. So that market particularly is focusing on the human beings and, well, yes, there's still really good tech going through that, but actually training us to don't click on the link that, that's phishing or don't click on the... Christmas card that's actually a, a Trojan injection. And they're really getting to think about the human being piece. And I do think over time, that's going to that's gonna evolve into more of the software and more of the digital transformation market. So potentially a little bit opinionated, but I'll give you, I'll give you some thoughts there. Yeah, and I suppose I, I'm always a little bit sort of, um, particularly about the training piece. You know, we've talked about this a lot internally and about how sometimes enterprise level tools can be so complex that you actually need that, that training. However, a lot of your users that are using that stuff, they're using you know, things like Instagram and Facebook on a day-to-day -day basis. They have no training on how to use that. You know, is that down to you know, the, the tech companies? Should they be improving those, those apps to make them more, those software things, more human-centric? And, and I think there's a there's a big win there somewhere, isn't there? Because that would take some serious cost out of businesses as well. I mean, there's an interesting school of thought developing exactly off that. During COVID, we saw people just using consumer goods, consumer electronics, which evolved really quickly, apps, you know, the supercomputer that runs all of our lives. We just have the apps that work for us, and it's just really, really easy. As you say, we don't need to learn how it works. Enterprise IT layering up more clever functionality on top of it because that justifies a price increase and, you know, Somebody's asked us for this, so we'll deliver it. That creates some really interesting challenges. If you move to a, a more software-as-a-service consumption-based model, people are only going to pay for what they're using. So actually just layering on extra, extra whiz-bang functionality because it's really good, if people don't use it, they're not going to value it. So how do you – it's not like selling a perpetual bit of license. You sell it once, you get all the money up front, you forget about it, as long as you sort of serve people and they don't kick up too much of us. I'm, I'm being slightly facetious for effect there versus SaaS where people are going to pay on a per use or per speed basis every year. And, it, and if they don't, if you don't deliver value to them, well, they're probably going to move because there maybe isn't the inertia. If it's in the cloud, it may be easier to transition to somewhere else. So you've got to really got to demonstrate value. And that value perception, I think, is different. And I think people are having to get their heads around what is value. Value isn't lots of bells and whistles if nobody uses them. I completely agree. I've actually had that very conversation at the end of last month with one of our vendors, and it was actually a largest opportunity. And they were saying, "Oh, this deal's going to close. This is this is it." And they're getting all excited about it. And I was like, "Actually, we've spoken to the the account director, who's really close to the account, and they're saying that you gave them X number of licenses last time round, and they haven't deployed them all. So why would they be renewing for another two years with additional licensing?" They haven't already deployed what they've got. There's obviously a value issue there. Um, and that they really did struggle to sort of understand that and pushing back onto the vendor going, no, I don't think your deal is, is going to be as sweet as I think it is. It is a, you know, is a real challenge at times. But but yeah, that 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 we could talk all day about that consumption-based model. It's uh, very topical at the moment. But uh, you you touched on something else there about AI and and, and bias. And I'm really, really you know, one of the things that I've been speaking to people a lot about is, is you know, technology such as AI are coming under, you know, the scrutiny around the bias that they may have. And we've also seen some challenges around facial re facial recognition that's been in the in the general media. 
know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And, and you know, the, the, I suppose uh, predominantly the concerns around the data that they collect. How aware are investors or, or tech companies in particular aware of the ethical environmental impacts that the technologies that they sell and produce have? I, I suppose uh, I'll give you an example. I was watching a a BBC documentary last night, and it was about vertical farming. Really great concept. And then they started sort of, they started off and I was like, oh yeah, this is a great idea. And then they started talking about the cost of energy's impact. And then we, we all know that, you know, you see these documentaries about these weed farms and, and, and they can find them because the house is giving off so much heat and it leaves a thermal imprint. And, uh, so they were talking about this, you know, they, they've got LED lighting and that lot, and they're saying that the energy cost is, is having an impact but then they were saying oh well we're going to have solar panels to i suppose to to, to impact that but i'm thinking the, the land that you're going to have to put the solar panels are on is probably going to be as much space that your farm would have taken and you, so that that was an environmental impact but again the tech industry at the moment isn't particularly as green as it is and is that something that you know the banks and investors are considering now is that environmental impact on it yeah absolutely massively i spend probably a third of my time with private equity or with vcs and they're all looking at what is what is the esg strategy so environmental social and government strategy of their firms that they're looking in what is the what is the move to decarbonization what is the move to energy efficiency i was reading some stuff earlier on this morning so about somewhere between two and three percent of the world's power consumption goes into tech in its in its kind of largest most pervasive most of the carbon of that goes into the embodiment of the actual machinery so the servers the laptops those sort of things goes into precious metals and the things that come come out of the ground for those so actually circular economy can you reuse stuff can you just even simple things like for users instead of sticking something on an email and it getting sent around 50 different people can you stick it on a sharepoint or in teams then it's only in one place because actually when you start doing that at scale you save a huge amount of, of servers and you save a huge amount of storage. And actually, some of that simple stuff people are, are now beginning to get. Data centers, where are they? What do they look like? Are they up in the Nordics? Are they on a nice cool breeze going through them so they're not using energy? Can you re... You know, we're doing some work with a Scottish hosting business where they're working with a university to recover energy that's coming out of their data centers and use it for other purposes. So there's a whole range of examples so the answer is absolutely yes, people are looking at it. We look at it with all of our customers. Investors are looking at it, private market, public market investors. They're all looking at it because it's it's the right thing to do. And it's very much the way that the world is is traveling. One thing I would just like to pick up on, on something you said earlier on, on sort of bias and data. So if you would be so kind as to humor me, let me ask you some questions. So if I said to you that, that on average, and this is US data, a GP only gets first diagnosis right, something around 50% of the time, how would that make you feel? Yeah, I'd be pretty nervous about that. If I said to you that IBM Watson's got a medical practitioner's license in the US and it gets it right only about 20% of the time, but you stick the two of them together and it gets it and it gets that first diagnosis right somewhere north of 90%, to me that's a fantastic positive because you're not giving people antibiotics you don't need, you're getting people healthier, better, quicker, and, and that's got to be a societal good. When I, I use that quite a lot when I'm talking about industrial fourth industrial revolution and how the world is changing. And people, their view generally changes of, I'm a bit scared of data to, all right, okay, that's quite interesting. Why does that actually work? Well, that works because the GP gets the obvious and the data is list, listening to uh, natural language processing and effectively working it through and says, okay, you've just come back from Africa and what you've got actually sounds like dengue fever, not flu. Right, so it then asks, it then prompts the doctor to ask some slightly more obscure questions, which um, sort of finesses down the answer. That I think is a classic example of big data for good versus you, you talked about facial recognition. There's a whole range of examples where you know in the UK and in Europe, facial recognition has gone wildly wrong, and the, yes, it's achieved some of its ambitions and some of the the pilot tests, but it's also a whole raft of law of unintended consequences as far as quite a famous case the police force of Wales did, I think at a Cardiff City match, and this is off the top of my head, so I'm probably going to misquote the stats, but I think they they put the 60 most wanted people in, in um, Cardiff that they hadn't managed to arrest. They put their facial ID in and they scanned all this crowd as they came in and they managed, I think, to get five of them. But unfortunately, there was something like 95 false positives, people who were 
kind of effectively not quite arrested, but pretty nearly arrested because the technology says, oh, you're somebody. Well, actually, no, they weren't. So there, there is a huge amount of work that still needs to be done on that. But the trouble is we as human beings need to differentiate the good stuff, you know, get you better quicker from the bad stuff of, well, facial recognition is not quite out there yet, big brother, and, and all of the uh, associated dystopian views around that. Yeah, I must admit, I, I think those technologies can do so much good. And I have I have read quite a lot of the, the articles about Watson and I think the, the rate in which they diagnosed cancer was something like twice as fast and 86% more successful in its own right. And I think it justified it just, just from, from that kind of data. And, and I find it bizarre and I always say, you know, it's like I suppose the same, same was with CCTV many years ago. And, uh, you know, I was always like, well, if you're not up to any no good, then it, it, then it's not a problem, is it? And I will say, you know, if someone was to abduct a family member and you had CCTV there to help recover them quicker, then obviously, yeah, that, that's a good thing, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, it, it's Absolutely. down to personal preference, I, I think. In terms of sort of touching on the investment thing, you know, obviously I speak to a lot of US-based companies. Uh, yeah, I've spoken to... Uh, People that have worked on the venture capital side, bought and sold companies a great deal. And, you know, you'll be speaking as a, as a global bank. That tech sector side is very regionalized, I feel. I think there's a very different culture between particularly the US and Europe. Do you think that there's different attitudes between, you know, especially profitability? Because I think the US has a very different view on that, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you go back a few years ago, there was a there was a bit of a, a bit of a view, and maybe it still holds true now, probably less so in the last two months. Um, that the US venture capital model was around go get a land grab, invest a load of money, and at some point, you know, let's let's not worry about unit economics. At some point, we'll make money because we own every we own all the land, and we, we are the market. That that sort of gets unravelled in terms of unit economics. So you lose more money on every unit. That ain't, that ain't necessarily brilliant. The European market, the UK market, has always been much more focused on let's go grow something, let's get to profitability. Maybe the fact that the European and UK markets are overall smaller has driven that mentality, and the US market is bigger and there's more money, I don't know. I'm, I'm not close enough to what's happened in the US over the last couple of months, but certainly in Europe, and, and I hear noises coming out of the US VCs, probably both sides of the Atlantic are saying to all of their investee companies, please go and focus on profitability. We're not just going to keep throwing money at you. You need to actually become, you know, God forbid, a proper business. That's maybe a little bit unfair, but you need to transition into, into actually selling stuff that makes money off each unit or gets close to it and demonstrating that you are transitioning into a long a long term viable proposition versus an earlier stage high growth and it's absorbing a lot of cash as it grows i was speaking to someone recently over lunch in london a couple of months ago and uh, we were talking about obviously the, the i suppose the chain the winds changing in the us in terms to the growth and they're saying that 18 months 2 years ago the investment you know and the money that companies were raising was 100 times value and they said that it was it got to an insane level that people were raising very very quickly and now in a very short period that's coming down to about 10 times in you know as many months really and uh, they said that 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 was a real worry and a sign that investors are getting a little bit nervous and that they, they see everything is overvalued basically yeah so i'm no i'm no expert on the u.s market but i've got a pretty good view on what's going on in the uk and the european market and and those stats are broadly, broadly correct. If you look at money that's been raised by venture capital-backed businesses, VC-backed businesses, but then when you scratch below the surface of, of what does that actually mean, the, the sort of what I would describe as the core venture capital investing, so investing in businesses that are on a high growth trajectory, that are loss-making and now are doing something different, that series A, B, and C type earlier stage stuff is still absolutely going at a similar sort of level that it was. Investors are spending more time on due diligence and they are understand they are being understandably more cautious. The stuff that's that stopped is the the mega unicorn rounds, the really big stuff. So it's the sort of 80-20. There's 80% going in the smaller the day-to-day, -day, the more run-of-the-mill thing, and the 20% by volume, but probably 80% by value is the stuff that's stopped. Yeah, really, really interesting. No, it's all always interesting to have a chat where the money comes from. But yeah, our no. Pension, our pension funds usually. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And in terms of, you know, we're covering a real broad 
spectrum of things here and I suppose questions that perhaps uh, you know our, our audience would be interested in and I suppose from from I suppose we've talked about apps and you know also you know some of the technologies are obviously physical products does our appetite for the latest te technology outpace the use cases and often the return on investment so uh, let's talk about our own personal supercomputer that lives in our pocket, our mobile phones. I suspect I'm not the only one, I'm, I'm holding it up, I'm not the only one who is using a sliver, a tiny percentage of the capability, and I'm not naming products, but the capability of the product that, that runs my life, I'm using a tiny, 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 tiny amount of it. Does that mean I won't go out and buy the latest one when it comes out? Well, the one has just recently come out and I'm thinking about buying it, even though it's expensive. <laughs> because I want the latest, shiniest, et cetera, et cetera. So there's such a natural contradiction there. And again, I don't want to kind of overlay the psychology of it, but it, but it is, it's just like we are human beings. It's the way we are. We like shiny new things. That does actually, back to some of the circular economy stuff we talked about earlier on, that does create some problems because, you know, as an enterprise user, if I can deploy, you know, 2,000 laptops that have been repurposed, that have been re-engineered, and they're 50% of the cost of the new ones that are exactly comparable, why wouldn't I do that? Well, why wouldn't I do that? I'd have to be pretty comfortable on the data and I'd have to make sure the device was secure and I'd have to make sure they did what they said they were going to do. If all of that worked, then I'd, then I'd absolutely do it, but they'd have to look and feel like new ones because I think most of my users, if I said, here's a, here's a new laptop, but it, it's pre-owned and it's worn and it's broken, people aren't going to like it. So I don't really know what the answer to all of this is, but you know, human beings don't use much of the technology that's that's in front of them. We all overbuy stuff. I don't really know what the answer of that is, other than some sort of dystopian challenge, which we probably don't want to go into. I, I'm old enough to have watched the very first space shuttle go up. Uh, we had a futurist working with us uh, on my last episode of the podcast, and he said that there's more computing power in those mobile phones in our back pocket than sent the space shuttle into space that time. And that, that's really scary when you think about it. That's, that's yeah. absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. It, it's just, I suppose, the, the technology there, and you say that we, we're not using what we've got, but we still want to pursue the, the next best thing. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the way it is. Where I think that gets really interesting, though, is you know, wearables, smart tech, ed tech, med tech, all of these stuff where actually the technology that we've already got can fundamentally change the life experience. If you look at, if you look at med tech, for example, you know, personal wearables, at some point in the near future, your GP will phone you in the morning and say, you, you appeared on the list that I need to phone you because your heart's out of rhythm or your cholesterol's looking high, purely from sharing data from personal wearables. And that to me feels like a fantastic thing, assuming you can get over the data issues around it, because it will move from a, a sort of a reactive, i.e. I'm ill, I've had a heart attack, I'm dropped, killed over, to a, a proactive, right, well, if I don't do something, something's going to happen. And I think that's where some of the power that these things that we carry around that we just don't know about can be incredibly telling for us, whether that's medical tech, whether that's ed tech. You know, helping people learn to read, helping people who are, have got learning difficulties with all, all sorts of challenges and, and, and helping bring their different perspective into the workforce and into the world. Yeah, I've seen that in, you know, in my own personal life. I've got a family member that has type 1 diabetes and she, she's had it since she, she was a child. And um, the advances in the last five years, um, you know, with the sensors, you've got apps, so your phone can even wake you in the middle of the night, so your blood sugar levels are dropping that the, the the difference that makes to someone's life is huge. And again, we're seeing, I had a podcast guest on last series who was a technology advisor to the World Health Organization. He was saying that, you know, out in Nigeria, everyone thinks that malaria is one of the biggest killers. And actually it's RTAs because people drive like crazy through the town and cause challenges. And they're teaching people how to deal with RTA injuries using AR and VR technologies because that's the best way of doing it and they can teach them remotely as well. So the power that these technologies bring is, is quite significant, particularly in those spaces. Yeah, I mean, wow. I didn't know, I didn't know about malaria and road traffic accidents, but again, when you start to dig underneath the skin, it, it kind of does make sense, doesn't it? Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, read the, I read New Scientist every week in, for a couple of reasons. One, because I, I enjoy it, and two, because I try and read things that are different 
you know, it, the, the world increasingly serves a myopic view of the world. So I try and go and find things that are different. That there's a lot of really interesting tech in there. And actually, some of the stuff it talks about, you go, okay, that's interesting. It just it just kind of makes you think slightly differently than you normally would. And you know, we've seen you know the likes of AR and VR start to be used in training more and more in the enterprise place, particularly where you've got a high turnover of employees because uh, particularly like in warehouse situations, you can teach them how to handle a package, how to go to the shelf, how to pick it. And you can do that via AR and VR rather than having to take a manager off doing what he's doing and sit them in a training room for three, four days and, and they can teach them on it. It's just far more cost effective, uh, far more efficient. And the training tends to actually get better feedback from the actual training. So yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I was looking at something a while ago, which was looking, which was used the use of the virtual, well, virtual reality and augmented reality training in high risk environments. So nuclear decommissioning and with the fire services around getting people out of aircraft where there's fuel fires, where you know, quite a difficult place to go and train both of those environments because you get either of them wrong. You probably only get it wrong once. And actually the ability to go and test and learn is is really interesting. And actually that that test and learn methodology, and I'm, I'm now hijacking the question, by the way, that test and learn methodology does actually go a long way into all sorts of other things. Actually, if we can, if we can experiment, if we can learn in a, in a safe environment and bring some from that learning and deploy it into the real world really quickly, that probably works in this environment where pace of change is pretty big as well. Yeah. And again, I suppose uh, education, you know, I, I went to, um, uh, a dinner one evening and a few years ago when AR was relatively new and they gave us these cardboard ones that, that you put your phone in and they, they got everyone to download an app, which probably these days you'd probably think was a bit risky downloading some app that you weren't aware of, but you downloaded this app and you put these, these VR goggles on and it took you through into the rainforest and you got the vision and you could look down in this rainforest and you could hear all the birds and, and everything. And it, it sounded and, and, and it was absolutely amazing. And then you kind of took a, they encouraged you to take a step forward. And as you went forward, they were actually cutting down the trees and there was a group of loggers there and the noise from the chainsaws and the emotional impact that it had on everybody. The room just went silent. And I was like, wow, that is so powerful to be able to put that experience, particularly kids in a classroom. It's all right showing it on the thing, but actually being able to walk them through that is so powerful. Yeah, that all, I, I can believe that. It also plays into your type of your learning styles. You know, somebody tells me I'd learn it in one way. I, I experience it myself. I learn another and I'm actually I'm immersed in it. I can learn it in a third way. And, and actually, if you do all three, you, you probably have a more profound experience as you, as you talked about there. One of the problems and challenges of all of that is the software is there and the hype is there, but the technology is not there yet. I don't know if you've, you know, there are loads of brands. You, you, you stick the headsets on, they're pretty good, you know, move your head yep up and down yeah that all kind of works do you then put a glove on your hands that works to an extent but the immersive experience isn't quite there yet i'm a bit of a fan of star wars and star trek you know if you, if you look at star trek and the hollow deck that's really where we want to get to we want to get to that full-on immersive experience where we really are in that alternative world all of that said I was talking to business beginning of this year where they use augmented reality in building maintenance, property maintenance business, where they've created some very clever software that effectively takes the plans, the schematics of where the pipes and the electrical conduits in the wall should be, should be being the key word. And then when an engineer is in the building, he can basically hold his phone up with some clever internal location technology, and it shows him, right, don't drill there because there should be a water pipe. Where that technology is falling down at the moment is the stuff isn't always built where it should be built. So sometimes it says it's safe to drill a hole there, and then they then find that, there's a, you know, they can still do all the usual stud checks, et cetera. But you know, sometimes, again, I don't want to overlay the human being, but you know, it's all very well planned saying X, Y, Z should be there. If it's not there or it's somewhere it should be, you can still have a problem. Yeah, yeah, very true. And that's even, you know, in some sites, they won't even tell you where it is. I've got a friend who's a contractor and he works on nuclear sort of pipes and stuff like that. And everything's on a need-to-know basis. So he'll say, oh, I'm going to run a pipe down this wall. And they'll say, no, you can't do that. And then it'll be, but what's behind that wall? I can't tell you that. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to rely on that human element. And I suppose just move, moving on, I'm conscious of, of your time. We've been working with tech startups and, and what, what people call hyper growth vendors for years. 
Um, and we're talking leaders in the likes of synthetic data, metaverse, and technologies that excite the security services. You know, a lot of really cool stuff. What technology would you be backing to be the next in demand for the enterprise space? And I know that's a huge, huge ask, and it's uh, everyone's going to have a different opinion on it. So it's just really your sort of opinion. So we've we talked a little about augmented reality. So the metaverse, I think, is going to be quite interesting. I don't think it will be owned by Meta. And I don't think it will look like the metaverse looks like today, but whether that's whether that's web 4.0, 5.0, whatever that looks like, it will be something else that is some sort of immersive environment. It's not, you know, we're doing this over Zoom today. It's not a big leap from having a conversation over Zoom to having a conversation in another place. And that's kind of what I see the metaverse being. You know, from our firm perspective, we've sponsored a football stadium or sports stadium there, and we've got some branches in the metaverse, and we're working really hard to try and think about what might that mean for us? What more importantly, what might that mean for our customers going forwards? And what might that mean for business? So I think that's an interesting area. Um, we talked a little bit about some of the med tech, ed tech stuff. I think they're really interesting. Cyber is not going anywhere. Unfortunately, quantum will potentially materially change that environment. Again, that's probably a little bit further away. But if quantum computing gets cracked, then quantum encryption becomes really interesting, because otherwise, all of the encryption that's used around the world is is almost instantly crackable. And then almost bringing us back to where we were starting earlier on, because you were asking about Vesta's views on sustainability and, and the whole green environmental challenge. That I think is a massive area of focus at the moment, whether it's clean tech, climate tech, decarbonization, energy efficiency, there's there's a whole push in that area. And the more you dig into it, the more you find all sorts of other areas that are branching off it. Yeah, no, and uh, I must admit, I suppose a number of those. So yeah, the, the, I suppose the green tech side of thing is is huge, and and you know we as a business have got a lot of focus on that ourselves at the moment. But I suppose when we're looking at you know technologies such as, and I always think you know if you could have a a football stadium and have that as virtual, where you can be next to your mate, watch the same game as your mate, you can choose your seats. And it, and you can kind of get that immersive experience. And if you're a, you know, if you're one of the big clubs, and we won't have the argument over who's a big club or not, because uh, yeah, that we could be here all day. But some of those big clubs that have got a global fan base, you know, if they can get that right, the money that they can make is just going to be immense. Because even if you sell a ticket at, you know, three dollars a ticket or something like that, you know, and you've got, you know, a million fans that could drop in and watch that, that's just insane, isn't it? I think the concept's there and it's there in principle, but the computing power isn't quite there yet. But again, if quantum kicks in, who who knows? So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think all of that stuff is is a fair shout. I'd probably, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm more a rugby man than a football man, but don't hold that against me. I'd still probably want to go and actually watch it and experience it unless you can have the whole, unless it is that immersive that it feels like the real thing. At least I probably wouldn't get quite so cold sometimes sitting watching rugby. Yeah, and at the moment, I think they look too much like Minecraft to be able to yeah. uh, the experience is a bit like being in a Minecraft setup rather than a, a virtual space, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But don't, don't, don't knock things like Minecraft and Roblox because they're just you know another example of a, a metaverse just in a different sort of place. Yeah, I, I just you know m- my daughter absolutely growing up absolutely loved Minecraft and I still to this day don't get it because you know it's kind of like the graphics that I grew up with on my ZX Spectrum. You know, it's. Uh, that, that that's another conversation. I suppose this is a, a, a probably a controversial question, but for my last main question, are banks and financial institutions in danger of being heavily disrupted by the very technology that they're looking to invest in? So I can only really give a view on on where we are. A bit like that point I made earlier on about tech firms actually being technology agnostic. So HSBC has been around for a long time. You know, let's say you know, a couple of hundred years. You don't exist for a couple of hundred years without evolving, even if you just look at how we talked about mobile phones. If you look at how the world has changed in the last 20-odd years since the iPhone was So project that back. We spend quite a lot of time actively working with earlier-stage disruptive businesses. We've got a, an investment unit that invests in the technology that we're using to change ourselves. I think the way the world is going is you, you will find more of the big brands they will be buying up the disruptive tech to, to use into it. But actually, some of the changes that outside of that, the changes are coming from, from left field. It's a bit like the auto manufacturers didn't really take Tesla seriously. So the, the banks, as far as I can tell, and it's not the area I particularly focus on, although I have a bit of a view on it, are taking very seriously the threat from 
non-traditional banking sources, how the world is changing. But you sort of then come back to, well, if, if for example, we've been around for a long time and we've got a big customer base and we're trusted and, and trust is probably one of the biggest things that does come out when you start talking to consumers. Consumers will trust brands on their perception of the brands and, and the perception of the brand is something very different to the size of the business. So there can be some very early stage businesses that have got very strong brands that are perceived to have very strong value and, and be very trusted. So, I mean, if you look again at the banking piece, the traditional banks will be trusted. We've seen some unfortunate, pretty bad things going on with crypto over the last six and nine months, and, and, and maybe the NFT bubble has burst. I think that will cause people to look back at, at more traditional financing partners or, or financing sources. Banks and other large institutions have got to continue to evolve and they've got to move with the world back almost all the way back to question one, where if we don't evolve, the world's going to evolve around us. And if we're not careful, we'll be dinosaurs. I, I can certainly say from HSBC's perspective, we're investing a load of time and money and effort, not only in today, but also in the future and making sure we're delivering what our customers need for today and also helping them and us think about what might they need for the future, what might tomorrow bring. We talked about the metaverse. Is that the metaverse? Is that web 4.0? Is that something we don't even know about yet? Only time will tell. Yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose, you know, I suppose finance isn't the only industry that, that's getting disrupted. I think I was speaking to someone yesterday and they were saying that, you know, the, the, the next two major industries to be disrupted predominantly by machine learning and AI, uh, one will be law. And the second will be basically accountancy, traditional accountancy, which is which is there. But I had a stat uh, thrown at me, which sticks in my brain the other day, and it was Starbucks. And through, um, you know, we will see Starbucks as a coffee shop, but Starbucks through um, the way it's evolved and predominantly through its uh, loyalty cards. So these people put have these cards, they uh, put a deposit on it to go and get their coffee, and they get some benefits out of the bat, probably a free coffee. Apparently, Starbucks, through that scheme, now take more deposits than 70% of some of the banks in the US. Wow. So effectively, Starbucks is actually a finance organization now. That's mad. That is absolutely mad. I can believe it, but it, but it is mad. Yeah, it's crazy because it's probably lots of people with 20 or $30 going into it at a time or whatever. And if you think that's globally with the reach yeah. that they have, that, that's going to be a big number. The disruption point you make there around, you know, for example, legal, I think is is really interesting because you can see how legal precedent checking can get done by a bit of algorithm, a bit of clever software. But you then have the problem that if you think about it today, how do senior lawyers get their experience while well, they come up through the ranks of checking documents and doing bits of process and, and that's how they get it. If the technology takes over that bit, how do you get the people that can give the advice and the insight? Because you can only do that if you learn through the way up so that will require an entire not not just change of how the industry works but an entire change of how you educate and how you develop people because the value add bit you know mind you maybe to the same thing the value add bit is the guidance and the advice and the insights that you can bring of it's all very well the computer telling me the precedent says that and this says that yeah but what does that actually mean for me and computer can't tell you that or is well certainly can't today that's where the human being comes in. So to, to steal a quote from a guy called Ian Stewart, who's the CEO of HSBC in the UK, he says, let the machines do the ordinary and let the human beings do the extraordinary, which actually kind of in that context makes sense. Yeah, and I think there's, um, you know, I've again had, had this conversation recently where um, I think people sometimes have got very complex problems you know, perhaps legal, you know, it's going to be hugely common. And then someone's very simply going, oh, we can do that with an algorithm. You know, that, that's that's fine. Where in reality, you're giving a very simple answer to something where people would sit in a room for you know, very clever people, far cleverer than I'll ever be. They're sitting in a room for, for years on end trying to fathom this out. And it's, oh, yeah, an algorithm could do that. And uh, I think sometimes trying to provide that simple answer to a complex solution, you've got a way to go, yeah, is, is where we are with that. Yeah, absolutely. So just a couple of wind down questions now. And I suppose um, I suppose technology is creeping into everybody's home these days. So I'm going to ask you for smart home or leave it at the office, the technology, but that being. Is there a, is there a halfway house? So I'm not a, I'm not a big fan in Alexa and I'm not a big fan of, of voice control. 
but that I've got various cameras that we use at home that automatically arm themselves at night. And, you know, that, that type of technology and things, you know, IOT sensors that do stuff, turn lights on, turns lights off. So actually I'm kind of firmly in the, in the middle of not a big fan of voice control, but actually stuff that makes my life easier. Let's me know when the cats are in or the cats are out, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm probably into that. So you've not gone full IoT at home then? No. no. I know people who have, but no, not me. Yeah, I know a few have as well. Yeah, I think they've got too much time on their hands myself. <laughs> but, but there we go. And last question, what's your favourite tech gadget? Oh, I want to give an answer that's not, not, not my watch, but I'm struggling to give an answer that isn't my watch. So I've, I've not got a particularly clever smartwatch, just a Garmin one, but it, it, it gives me my heart rate. It, when I go sailing, it tells me how fast I'm going. When I go running, it, it tells me all that sort of stuff. Got maps on it, puts my text messages up. Just generally makes my life a little bit easier. And I only have to charge it once every couple of weeks. So that one works for me. Yeah, I'm with that. There we go. Yeah, old Garmin. So there you go. Yeah, yeah no, it, it's the thing I like about the smart the the watch is if you're in a meeting or something like that and you get a notification, say your next meeting's coming up, it just buzzes gently on your wrist. So you don't have to look at your phone. So you're not looking at been rude or anything and looking at your phone. So I, I also use it, and this is back to the some addition. I, I spend quite a lot of time when I'm in London, I'll try and generally walk between meetings because I can do phone calls and I can do stuff rather than being on the tube and, and not, not being productive. And actually, just one of the great things of on your phone, it's giving me directions and it's just buzzing once once or twice on my wrist for left or right junctions. It just makes it kind of really back to that real simple stuff. Yeah, it's probably yeah. a lot of what we've been talking about today is actually cutting through the complicated and, and, and how can technology help with the simple things, wealth, make your lives easier and better. Brilliant. And what a great way to wrap up the show so thank you very much for that and yeah thanks for your time today it's been great speaking to you and there's some lots of great content there and uh say i could probably spend a lot of time chatting to you about all different technologies and the, the world out there but obviously conscious of everybody's time but a big thank you for joining us today on the show yeah thanks again thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun thanks for listening to this episode of asm connected with guest roland emmons if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.